And now I'll introduce our today's guest. For Canadian journalists who follow the workings of government, there's been no shortage of material lately. We can't open a newspaper or turn on the car radio without hearing about a scandal, mismanagement in some public office, agency, or tax taxpayer-funded operation. Well, not so here today, quite the contrary. Yes, the Economic Development Corporation is a crown corporation wholly owned by the Government of Canada, but it operates in a very non-governmental way. First of all, while it's true that the EDC is backed by the federal government, it is a financially self-sustaining entity. It operates on commercial principles like the businesses it supports. Next, it's a recognized leader in financial reporting and economic analysis and has been one of Canada's top 100 employers for eight consecutive years now. Every year, the EDC, with its knowledge of business and its partnerships around the world, is used to more than 8,300 Canadian companies and their global customers in as many as 200 markets worldwide. But what's especially compelling about EDC's approach at this time and at this economy is that 80% of its customers are small and medium-sized businesses, the kinds of companies that offer the best prospects for growth and development in the years to come. In 2008, EDC helped facilitate $85.8 billion in exports and investments in 184 markets, a 23% increase over its 2007 results. The commerce and business that EDC made possible supported 572,000 jobs and added $57.8 billion to Canada's GDP last year. That's almost 4.5% of the total. Our guest today has been with the EDC for over 30 years as one of the reasons for its success. Eric Siegel was named Chief Operating Officer September 2005, assuming overall leadership of EDC's business development and transacting groups. In January 2007, he was appointed President, Chief Executive Officer. Today, he'll tell us about EDC's new and expanded financial capacity and mandate, and how it's pulling all the stops to help drive Canada's economy and its recovery. Please help me welcome Eric Siegel. Good afternoon. Well, thank you very much, John, for that uh, very uh, generous introduction and a, a great synopsis of uh, EDC. Uh, um, I also want to uh, thank uh, our friends at BMO, uh, to uh, Peter, to Sarah, to uh, Ed. Thank you very much for uh, helping us to sponsor this lunch. So it's a great uh, partnership to be part of the forum and uh, to be here with you today. Um, it's often the case uh, in speeches like this that uh, you find some topical humor to, uh, to start. And I'm not particularly good at this, and some would argue that coming from Ottawa, that's redundant anyway. But, uh, uh, and uh, since this is, I uh, gather, being uh, televised, I have to be careful as to the humor that I select. But, uh, so I guess you could easily gravitate to the most easy thing, and that's to talk about the Leafs and their stellar performance, although it improved by 25%, I guess, uh, last night. So that's, 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 that's good. Um, and uh, there are some really good jokes, as you know, that are circulating around the, about the Leafs. Uh, I'm fond of the one about the Titanic and the ice and they're both hitting the... Well, anyway, uh, <laughs> I won't go there. Uh, I'm going to resist the temptation to, uh, to beat up on the Leafs, even though, Rod, I think uh, you, you might think that it's, this is the chance to get a couple of shots in there, right? Uh, but I have worn blue and white, and it is in sympathy of your plight uh, here in Toronto. So uh, uh, like the global recession, uh, 2009 has not been stellar, and so we are all looking ahead with high expectations to uh, 2010, and the Leafs are uh, definitely in that category. 
Good afternoon and uh, welcome. It really is a pleasure for me to be here with you today and indeed to have uh, so many friends, uh, people who I've had the chance to uh, uh, interact with in my business career uh, here in the room as well. And, and so it's a great opportunity for me to share some reflections on the events of last year and I think where we're uh, going. But before I get started, I should mention that this, mark, this week actually marks a very special occasion for Export Development Canada, for EDC. We celebrated our 65th anniversary, and a lot has changed during that time. Uh, EDC's first office was created in 1944 to help the Canadian economy bounce back from the Second World War, and at that time it had just four employees. And let me tell you, they had their hands full at that time. The rapid expansion in trade since then has provided plenty of opportunities for EDC to help Canadian companies grow their export business. Now, EDC has more than 1,000 employees with offices across the country and indeed around the world. And we still have our hands full. As of the end of October, we had provided financing and insurance services to more than 7,700 Canadian exporters. Our services support a significant portion of the overall volume of business, uh, of, of the Canadian economy. And this year, we expect that the overall volume of business that we will have supported to be around $80 billion, about 5% lower, as John pointed out, than last year. But then, when you take into account that Canadian exports fell by 24% this year, you can see that we've been working pretty hard. When we think back to a year ago, to the Wall Street crash, there was a lot of pessimism concerning how we would fare. Popular wisdom indicates that when the American economy catches a cold, the Canadian economy gets pneumonia. Well, this time, the American economy caught something a lot more serious, the economic equivalent of pandemic influenza. Comparatively, Canada has had a case of the sniffles. And while the viruses responsible for pandemics have never respected man-made borders, economic crises used to be relatively contained. The worst of the recession would be felt in the country where the bubble originated, like Japan in the late 1990s, and mild to severe symptoms would be felt among the country's closest trading partners, which were generally close neighbors. But in the last year, the world faced its first truly global financial crisis. We have all witnessed the world's first truly global response as well. Globalization has tied our economies together. Shocks travel farther and faster but it has also provided us a means to respond through better coordinated monetary and fiscal policy. And the degree of government response is unprecedented. We've seen bailouts, nationalizations, and enormous government stimulus packages adding up to literally tens of trillions of dollars. While these drastic measures have mitigated the impacts, it will take time to reach a new normal. The dust is still settling. But one thing we can, sure of, we can be sure of is that we can't go back to the way we were. The fact is, one of the fundamentals of world trade, the easy flow of capital, can no longer be taken for granted. I can tell you, the global financial sector will be more risk-averse in the foreseeable future. The degree will, of course, vary from country to country. Canadian banks are in the enviable position of being well-capitalized but around the world, financial institutions will need to rebuild their balance sheets and the confidence of their investors. They will have to reevaluate the way they determine acceptable risks. What this, what this means is even though the economy is beginning to show signs of recovery, there are still significant gaps in the global credit markets. 
Some of these gaps are strictly a capacity problem. Banks are recapitalizing and lack the capacity to take on new financing. Some are sector specific, as financial institutions are reassessing their appetite for risk. They are backing away from certain sectors that are capital intensive or that have been facing troubled times. Aerospace, manufacturing, and forestry are prime examples. These gaps will necessitate continual involvement from governments. What we are waiting to see is how that will take shape. Governments around the world are facing a dilemma. They can't keep spending at the current rate, but they need to wean the economy off stimulus funding in a way that doesn't precipitate a prolonged recession. Through our unique financial system, Canada has largely avoided the dilemma, and that's what I really want to talk to you about today. A year ago, it seemed like the global economy was on the verge of collapse. But Canada is now on the road to recovery, after a recession that some would say was surprisingly mild. Now, this is not to gloss over the reality of recession. We can't lose sight of the jobs lost, the businesses that have had to close their doors, the families who have lost their homes. But all in all, Canada was comparatively unscathed. For example, the Canadian government hasn't nationalized any banks. It hasn't even provided a bailout in the sense that the U.S. government has had to. So what's the difference? What did we do so well? The first major difference is the regulation of Canada's banking system. There's no question. Our private sector financial institutions, once regarded as too conservative or overcautious, are among the strongest and the most respected in the world. But there's another key difference. Canada has well-structured public sector lenders and insurers. These organizations include, first, my own organization, Export Development Canada, which plays a key role in expanding international trade by providing financing and risk management services to assist Canadian companies in their international business. To help our customers weather the economic storm, EDC was given an expanded mandate, allowing us to provide these solutions domestically as well as additional capital to bolster our core business of encouraging trade and investment. Second comes the Business Development Bank of Canada, which is working in partnership with EDC and private financial institutions to increase Canadian businesses' access to credit through the Business Credit Availability Program, or BCAP for short as it's known. BDC has also created a new credit facility to purchase up to $12 billion in asset-backed securities, reflecting the sharp decline in this market. Third, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, which helped prevent the mortgage crisis, in, a mortgage crisis in Canada and has been instrumental in helping the government to free up credit capacity in the private sector by buying some $65 billion in mortgages from Canadian banks. And finally, the Farm Credit Corporation, which is continuing to provide financing, venture capital and insurance to agribusinesses across Canada. It is this network of public sector financial institutions that meant that Canada had a critical backstop to its financial system. The key here was that we did not work in isolation. We worked together. The bottom line is this. Canada has a unique model of public and private sector cooperation, which lessened the credit crunch and subsequent recession and is now playing a major role in positioning Canadian companies for recovery. It is as a result of this model that we fared better than those countries that did not have this infrastructure in place. It is that simple. I, for one, am immensely proud at this moment in history to be the president of a Canadian public financial institution 
because I believe that Canada has shown the world a clear path to a more stable and secure financial sector through our crowns. And I realize it's a bit un-Canadian of me to make such a boastful statement in a public forum. But I think there's a lesson to be learned here. And whether you look at it from Bay Street or Main Street, it's one of which we all should be proud. It's not that Canada's hybrid financial model hasn't seen its share of criticism. When economic times were sunnier, some raised concerns that Canada's public sector institutions could crowd out private sector capacity. But this credit crisis has shown us that if we let these institutions atrophy as the private sector takes over the market during times of strong growth, it's awfully difficult, if not impossible, to get them back when we need them again. One example of this is that, for me, that really stands out, is EDC's involvement with the auto sector over the past few years. Now, as anyone in this room knows, and Southern Ontario knows only too well, the big three, Ford, GM, and Chrysler, have seen their share of hard times lately. But they still have a major role to play in the North American economy, and as a Crown Corporation, EDC has a public policy interest in keeping auto sector jobs in Canada. The big three were struggling even before the credit crisis hit, and private sector financiers and insurers had already begun to withdraw their support from these companies and their suppliers. And as the private sector withdrew, EDC stepped up to support the Canadian auto sector in a number of ways. One of the least understood ways was that we met the higher demand for credits insurance. Simply put, as dealing with the big three was looking riskier, it became critical for auto parts suppliers to insure their receivables, and EDC was there to provide that service. EDC's products and services provided an important bridge to survival for nearly 600 Canadian companies in the auto sector, most of them small and medium-sized enterprises. What having accounts receivable insurance means in real terms is that if you're a small company supplying auto parts to the big three, you can still get paid even when your biggest customers are teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. You can go to your bank for a loan, and they will be more likely to approve it because they have ta you have taken steps to ensure that you can pay it back. It can make the difference, quite literally, between being able to keep your doors open, being able to make payroll and meet your order books, or going under. In contrast, the U.S. was scrambling to find a way to put a solution in place similar to EDC's insurance programs. In short, to find a way of doing what we were already doing in the market. What they found was that when a financial crisis hits, it's already too late for governments to try to create new capacity to provide that needed credit support. The fact that EDC had established programs and strong relationships with our customers and their banks gave Canadian businesses a competitive advantage because they were able to access these solutions quickly and cheaply. And those of you in business know just how important that is. Now, critics of public involvement in the credit market might ask about the risk that EDC is taking on through these transactions. Well, our transactions are all concluded on commercial terms, so as to minimize the risk to the taxpayer. In total, at the end of June, EDC had nearly a billion dollars in insurance exposure against just the big three auto manufacturers. But that has fallen to less than $575 million today. To date, we have paid out $2 million in claims, 
of which $1.6 million has been recovered. And that leaves us with about $400,000 outstanding, an amount well within our planning margins and the premiums we take in to cover these costs. So the cost of the Canadian taxpayer is zero. And I ask you, what would have been the cost in failed businesses and lost jobs without this support? And this is just one example, but there are others. In the hard-hit forestry sector, EDC has worked with more than 80% of the Canadian exporters and insured nearly $12 billion in business so far this year. And in the aerospace sector, we've provided more than a billion dollars in credits insurance across the sector. And credits, credits insurance is just one component of EDC's support. We've made the most of a crisis. We've strengthened our relationships with our partners in the financial sector, who now look to us as a source of additional capacity. And we've raised our profile among the Canadian businesses that can use our services. And so far this year, more than 1,500 new customers, new customers came to EDC from every sector of the Canadian economy. As I mentioned earlier, Canada has a whole network of Crown corporations that are filling gaps in the private sector, working to supplement it without supplanting it. So why does this work so well? Why did it make such a difference when compared to the after-fact approach of many other countries? Well, first, just like EDC, these agencies were already in place. In the case of CMHC, their activities helped prevent the irresponsible subprime mortgage market that wreaked havoc on the American credit markets. And in the case of the other Crown financial agencies, EDC, BDC, FCC, we had already built up a full suite of services, as well as relationships with a wide cross-section of Canadian businesses and their banks. Second, because these agencies were already in place, they had developed the internal competencies to be able to take on a broadened mandate efficiently and effectively. Third, these agencies operate on commercial terms, allowing us to share risks with the private sector. There is no subsidy in what we do, so we don't drive the private market out. And finally, we were able to set limits on our role and to see how our exit would occur. In EDC's case, our broadened mandate was set out for a period of two years, after which the domestic credit market will resume much of its previous capacity, but with strengthened partnerships in place. I like to call this intelligent stimulus. It takes advantage of existing capacity. It's designed to work with the market, and it has a built-in exit strategy. It's not a crutch for a limping market. It's physiotherapy. Uh, not only will it overcome the injury, we'll be stronger than ever in the end. So what does this mean for the future? Well, if we accept that the global financial market has been irrevocably altered by the events of the past 18 months, we must also accept that public sector financial institutions will have a more profound role in the market of the future. What we are likely to see is a global financial system that looks a lot more like Canada. More cooperation between public and private sectors because neither one of them can do it alone. And that is really the essence of what I have to say. We cannot do it alone. You only have to look south of the border to realize that the private sector couldn't do it alone. And had we not had the support and expertise of our private sector partners, the efforts of our crowns would, have been as, would not have been as effective. We couldn't have done it alone ourselves. Churchill was once quoted as saying that democracy is the worst form of government, with the exception of all the other forms that have been tried before. And you can almost say the same of markets 
or uh, the open market economy. But we must appreciate its weaknesses, its fallibilities, and not, but at the same time, not abandon its principles. So it is this model, the Canadian model, of a partnership between strong public sector and a vibrant private sector that has made the difference in weathering the credit crunch and the current recession. Let me give you another example of how this works. Earlier, I mentioned the Business, business Credit Availability Program, or BCAP, a partnership between EDC, BDC, and the private sector financial institutions put in place to help the Canadian businesses through the credit crunch. This enhanced public-private partnership came into effect in March 2009 with a two-year target of supporting some $5 billion in business. Well, by the end of August, after just six months, the program supported about $2.7 billion, assisting almost 6,000 Canadian companies in the process. I know that there are more than a few bankers in the room today, and I suspect that they would all agree with me that in this time of crisis, that's $2.7 billion in business. $2.7 billion that wouldn't have been possible without the partnership that was forged between those institutions. And it's not just about the dollars. We're talking about saving existing businesses and jobs and creating new ones. And that's what we can accomplish by working together in this way. This is the case not just in Canada, but the world stage. In response to a global financial crisis, we saw a response that went beyond the G7 to include the governments of emerging economies. Following the financial crisis of the 1990s, Canada was instrumental in establishing the G20. We recognized that as the engines of global economic growth, emerging economies needed to have a role in the global economic governance. And that vision has really taken form in April. In April, the G20 governance put forward a comprehensive plan to address the credit crunch and economic recession. This included a role for export credit agencies like EDC and the multilateral financial institutions like the World Bank to take an expanded role in filling gaps in the credit market. Specifically, these agencies were tasked to make $250 billion in trade finance available over the next two years. That's on top of the business that export credit agencies support each year. The Burn Union has found that its export credit agency members, its official members, underwrite a combined total of over half a trillion dollars worth of risk yearly. And when combined with the business volume of private sector insurers, the Burn Union covers approximately 10% of all world trade. So a word of caution. Even as we act quickly to address the effects of the credit crunch, we must be measured in how we expand the capacity of public financial institutions. We must make sure that we are taking advantage of their strengths without creating additional bureaucracy and duplication of roles between multilaterals and export credit agencies. And we would do well to adhere to the principles that supported Canada's intelligent stimulus. Work with existing players on commercial terms and set clear exit strategies. We need to ensure that the public sector financial institutions are able to make the most of this crisis coming away with strengthened partnerships. Part of this is that export credit agencies such as EDC should be and are developing on the ground expertise and relationships with financial institutions in emerging markets. It's just good business sense given that these economies are expected to outperform the G7 for the foreseeable future. At the government level, 
Globalization paved the way for a better coordinated response to the financial crisis, but it will also provide the key to recovery for individual companies. Those with diversified markets will be able to tap into the recovery no matter where it starts. To stay ahead of the curve, more Canadian companies need to build or buy into global supply chains, set up shops in customers' countries, take on joint ventures with foreign partners, and find niches in globalizing business. I said earlier that we made the most of the crisis. We strengthened partnerships and formed relationships with Canadian companies. These companies have discovered new services that will become part of their financial strategies from now on. And this is a positive development for Canadian trade, as these services can help our companies to be a little bolder in taking their products and their expertise to the world. And that's good news, because we need to be bold. We've been through a lot in the last year or so, and we've made a strong showing. Now is not the time to settle back into old habits, to pack up and go home. The fact is, the strides we've made over the last year have positioned us to be, to, to be able to make up for lost ground, because even before the recession hit, Canada's trade penetration was lagging. We need to do better. Trade is the lifeblood of the Canadian economy. One of every three jobs in this country depends on it. Last year, Canada exported more than $500 billion worth of goods and services, and that's more than a billion dollars a day for Canada's economy as Canadian companies met the needs of the world. So I can tell you that EDC is doing its part. We are encouraging Canadian investment abroad, helping investment vehicles like pension funds look for opportunities in new markets. We are expanding foreign representation so that we can strengthen our relationships with foreign buyers and their banks. We recently opened, for instance, a new office in Lima, Peru, and we're looking forward to further expansions over the next several months. And we're developing new strategies to leverage our relationships with key foreign buyers, allowing us to play a matchmaking role by introduce, introducing those buyers to Canadian suppliers. We believe that our approach will help Canadian businesses to catch the wave of recovery in the places where it will begin, places like Brazil, India, and China. And we believe that this approach will help Canadian businesses to thrive beyond the recovery and into the future. I mentioned when I first stepped up here that this week marks the 65th anniversary of EDC. I first joined the organization as you learned some 30 years ago, so I can speak with some authority about what has made EDC a success. It's the same formula that has worked for thousands of Canadian businesses in every sector of our economy. Set clear goals, work hard, and take care of your customers, and do it together. Our goals might be a little more complex than in the past, our customers a little further afield. But if we work together and work hard, I believe that we are in a position to not just ride the coattails of recovery, but to lead it. Thank you very, very much. John, I guess I agreed to take some questions, if there are questions, and we have a few minutes, I believe, uh, uh, available. So if there are some questions, I'd be delighted to address them. Please. Uh, I have a very interesting comments on helping industries. You did not mention how EDC is, how EDC is helping technology evolution in the country. Sorry, the technology area. 
I was wondering if you could comment on that. Sure. Um, well, uh, EDC has a very broad set of programs, and so what uh, I was speaking mainly to was our insurance and our financing programs. Uh, when we get into the area of technology and, and burgeoning technologies, helping new technologies uh, uh, get to market, uh, EDC also has equity capacity. Uh, and right now we have an equity program which is approaching in terms of uh, commitments and, and actual disbursements of uh, $500 uh, uh, million. Uh, it is uh, structured as uh, investments here in Canada and it's structured as participations in funds in some of these foreign emerging markets using the fund involvement in those foreign markets to open up opportunities for Canadian companies. And our participation here in Canada is, is uh, funded as either direct investments by EDC or our participation in a number of funds uh, spanning certain industry sectors who then are uh, the investors uh, in, these, uh, in these ventures. Uh, we have tended to be uh, at the later stage uh, of the development of that technology. We work in harmony with uh, BDC, who uh, has a very uh, significant equity investment program, and obviously we're working with the private market. Uh, and then what we're trying to do is, is, is also uh, not just provide financial assistance in the form of equity, uh, which may be in the pre-revenue or the uh, not sufficient revenue state to use our financing or our insurance programs, but the next piece that we bring is our advice. And some of what I talked about is our representation abroad and our knowledge of foreign players in the market. We want to use those relationships to bring them back to Canada to acquaint them with Canadian technology because it's making those connections, getting some of those players in the door to be able to uh, demonstrate their technology, uh, get it into supply chains, get it into major uh, purchasers' hands. So that, that's sort of the approach that we're taking with respect to uh, uh, to the, the growth of new technologies, which is critical to this country. Thank you. Eric. Yes, sir. Tell us a little bit more about the broader mandate EDC has been given as part of the stimulus program. Okay. Thanks. Thanks very much for that. Um, the, the mandate really was that uh, the government recognized that uh, during this period there were likely to be credit gaps in the domestic market. So they wanted EDC to be able to play a role in that, uh, a complementary role, I might add. Uh, EDC was not there to come in and displace that which was being done by others, nor to take over the position of others uh, who might want to exit, but rather to fill gaps. Uh, we define those gaps in three areas. Uh, from a financing perspective, we uh, have defined it as uh, short-term operating uh, credit that companies need. And so there what we've been doing is uh, coming into uh, joint uh, lending arrangements with banks. It could be a syndication, it could be a club deal, it could be just working with one other bank uh, to fill gaps with companies that are, uh, that, that we believe have the, the financial strength, obviously, they're credit worthy, they have the financial strength, but they're challenged to make it through this, this period. The other uh, areas where we have come in is, uh, one is in the area of credits insurance. We used to be a provider of domestic credits insurance in the market uh, five, six years ago. We exited uh, because the private market appeared to be handling that. Uh, during this crisis, we saw gaps emerge in capacity, and so we have come back in and we are providing reinsurance capacity to the credits insurance, the private credits insurers 
who are then have more capacity to offer their customers. Uh, and finally, in the area of bonding, uh, this is performance bonding. These could be surety bonds. It could be uh, letters of guarantee issued by banks. Uh, here again, we were seeing uh, constraints in terms of the capacity. And so EDC has come in to, uh, to provide uh, more capacity, again, by way of reinsurance uh, or guarantees to the bank in order to uh, ensure that there is sufficient bonding capacity in the market. Um, uh, and for all of that, EDC got a slight modification in the mandate uh, in our act, and, and there are some regulations that had limited our participation, which we have been temporarily suspended for a two-year period. And the theory is that, as I said, an exit strategy is that on the assumption that there, there won't be a need for our services two years down the road, then the suspension will end and, and, and we will go back. I would like to say, I, I hope we're not going back to where we were before because I think we've learned something through this whole cycle. I think we've built something through this whole cycle in terms of uh, our uh, interaction with uh, the banking community, with BDC, uh, with the market in general. And I think we want to figure out how do we capitalize on that going forward. Uh, but clearly the, the demand for EDC will lessen uh, and probably disappear in the immediate uh, sort of credit capacity uh, areas that we're participating right now. The other area that the government, um, the other thing the government did was they, they put more money into EDC. They put another 350 million of capital into EDC. Uh, it, it was a, a demonstration of their support. I have to tell you, when they did it, EDC already had 9.4 billion in capital, and, and so it modestly increased our capital, and uh, you know, we're pleased with that, but we, we already had the credit capacity, and I think it was a, just a strong uh, vote of confidence to the market that uh, you know, the government wanted to see EDC step and play more. So thank you for the question. We have room for one question if you have one, or else we. Uh... Well, I'll get out of here if that's the case. So thank you. Thank you again. Thank you very, very much. <laughs>